This obviously will be a continuation of chapter 4 in the workbook if you're following along there. And we'll finish the chapter. And if you're looking there, you know that there's not a whole lot of material left to cover. So like I did last week, I've added a little bit to it at the end to sort of fill out this point. We, we began last week by considering the, the doctrine of the deity or the, the true divinity of the Son under two headings, the doctrine stated and then the doctrine defended. And then we come now to consider the, the deity or the true divinity of the Holy Spirit. I want to reread some of the opening statements that are given there in the book because uh, I think they're helpful and I just want to, to reestablish what we're trying to to show here. He says, A person simply cannot be a Christian without recognizing that the Son and the Spirit are God, the second and third persons of the Trinity. The Son who became flesh for our salvation and the Spirit who indwells every believer. As a reminder that what we're talking about here is a first tier issue. These are matters of supreme importance. We would say if a person denies the true and full divinity of the Son or the Holy Spirit, that puts them outside of the bounds of Christianity. And, and as I thought about that and, and the statement, even, even that, that we made last Lord's Day with regard to the Son, I hope that when we say that, hear that, and affirm that, that we recognize that we are not coming together to simply decide uh, in some sort of prideful or haughty way, uh, you're not one of us. The, the only reason that we see these things and believe them and affirm them is because God has been merciful enough to open our eyes to see them. And apart from that, we would not see it. We would still be blind. And, and, and those who may even have a very sincere profession and yet deny these truths, um, we, should, we should feel compassion. Uh, they, they walk in blindness and they're not seeing and, and hopefully we just keep that in mind. We don't have anything that we've not received. We don't see these things because we studied the Bible more or saw it, uh, saw something there through our own intellect. But God has revealed these things to us. He goes on to say, the deity of the Son and the deity of the Spirit have been under constant attack throughout the near 2,000 years of Christian history. Therefore, it is absolutely essential that every true follower of Christ learn from the Scriptures that both the Son and the Spirit are fully divine in the strictest sense of the term. And so that's what our aim is, is to show that the Holy Spirit is fully divine in the strictest sense of the term, meaning the Holy Spirit is the God of the Bible. There, there is only one God in the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit is that God. And, and he, he makes that statement about these doctrines being attacked. And I realize even as I, as I study this and, and put all this together that for most of us, we've probably never even thought to question the deity of the Holy Spirit. That's never crossed my mind. Um, but, but there are some, and, and really men who have studied perhaps usually more deeply, they, they've, they've parsed things out too far that, that actually come to 
um, rejecting things like the deity of the Spirit or the deity of the Son. I, I say parsing it as in using their own intellect to, to try to comprehend what is, is incomprehensible. Um, whereas uh, for many of us, just the simple uh, faith uh, that God gives us from the very outset of our walk with the Lord has been sufficient to latch onto these things and to not really question them. Even, even though we had not, in, in His language, He says that uh, every true follower to learn from the Scriptures that both the Son and the Spirit are fully divine, I, I would say most of us probably accepted and affirmed and believed these things even before we could actually um, articulate it from the Scriptures or, or actually delved into them for ourselves. We, we, we received it many times passed down to us verbally through preaching and teaching, and we've accepted them. But it is important that we all take the steps necessary to try to study these things for ourselves, and that's what hopefully tonight will, will, will be that. I, there will be a, a time at the end where I'll do like I did last week, and I'll just be reading a lot of Scripture. And, and I don't want that to be a time of mere uh, listening, like you might listen to a song, but actually think about what the Word of God says about the Holy Spirit. So the first text that is, is given is Acts chapter 5. Verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart, you have not lied to men, but to God. So there in verse 3, Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, he says, you've lied to God. Obviously, the deduction would be, the Holy Spirit is being referred to as God. The note says, this is a strong affirmation, not only of the Spirit's deity, but also of the truth that the Spirit is a person and not an impersonal power. Where, where does he get that? Well, because he is one that can be lied to. And therefore, that's why he, he says that. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God because the Spirit is God. So here's another statement that we're not actually defending this evening, but the Holy Spirit is a person. If you read... Older works where they go into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and they, they defend the deity of the Holy Spirit, usually they put these two ideas together in their defense. They, 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 they set out to defend not only His deity, but His, his personhood. They usually start that way. Here's His true personhood and, and here's the divinity of that person because some have doubted the Spirit's personhood while affirming the deity of the Holy Spirit. They might say he's, the Holy Spirit is God, but not a distinct person from the Father, just sort of the, the power or the, a force coming from the Father. Others have affirmed the personhood of the Holy Spirit, but doubted or denied His deity. That It is a person, but it's, a, it's another being altogether, not of one essence uh, with the Father and the Son. So it's important that we understand that the Holy Spirit is a person, or to use the language we saw several weeks ago, a subsistence of the Trinity, of the divine nature, but also God Himself. 
So there in that passage, we simply see the same statement made of both the Holy Spirit and of God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. Now, this is not in the book, but if you keep reading down in verse 9, now addressing Sapphira, the wife of Ananias, then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together, you and your husband, to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? So now we see this phrase, the Spirit of the Lord. So really in this whole compass we have three titles. You've lied to God, or you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God, you've put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. That word Lord in the New Testament is parallel to the Old Testament's use of the term Adonai, which would have been a title of Yahweh Himself. In the New Testament, Lord is ascribed to Christ. So we, we could read this here, the Spirit of Christ who is the Lord. Oftentimes when people seek to defend the deity of Christ, they'll say, look at how He's referred to as Lord in the New Testament. Well, that was the same term that was used in the Old Testament uh, ascribed to Yahweh. So at the very least, we could read even here, the, you've, you've agreed together to put the Spirit of Christ as God to the test, or the Spirit of God. Anyway, in, in this little, just these few verses, we have three titles. He's the Holy Spirit, then He's referred to as God, and then He's referred to as the Spirit of the Lord. Now, some of you have probably run into this, people who would deny or reject the doctrines of grace or the uh, five points of Calvinism. They'll say, no, I, don't, I don't believe in, in that Calvinism because the Bible says... Um, Whosoever will. No, they might quote John 3.16. That whosoever believes. I believe whosoever believes. As if the Calvinists had not yet arrived at John 3 yet. Like, you know, we, they, you haven't seen this verse clearly. And we would say, you know, we read that verse and we believe that verse and affirm everything that it teaches as well. Um, so when we come to Acts 5 and we read what we just read, this, this information has not gone unseen by deniers of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. It's not like they said, well, I hadn't made it to Acts chapter 5 yet. I guess I concede the point. Um, they would argue, of course there is a Spirit of God. Of course there is a Spirit of Christ. Uh, but they wouldn't see the Spirit as subsisting as a distinct uh, person of the Godhead. Some, would, again, would say the Spirit is a, a quality of God or, or a, a force coming out from God. So we, we, we want to keep working. We shouldn't build any, everything like this or anything like this on, on just one text. So the next passage that is used is 1 Corinthians 3. You can turn there. First Corinthians chapter 3. And some would even have a hard time just with the whole concept of proof texting these various doctrines. But if you pick up any, any work of systematic theology, usually this is the way it's presented. Uh, just gathering up a heap of texts and, and, and running through them. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, I'm, I, I want to push against the commentary that's in the book a little bit, although I don't think this is contradictory. In, in 1 Corinthians 3, as far as I can tell, the, the context is the church. He's speaking of the church as an assembly which he refers to as the temple of God. 
Well, what does that imply except that God resides in that temple? The church. But then at the end of the statement, he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you, implying that the Spirit of God is God. In other words, just like in in the Acts 5 passage, the same thing is being predicated of both God and the Spirit. Now, flip just uh, over a couple pages to 1 Corinthians 6 because here's another reference that sort of gives the same point in a little different light. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Now here, the subject under discussion is the use of the physical body of the individual believer and sexual immorality. So here, when he says your body, and he refers to it as a temple, he's referring to that individual believer, and he says the Holy Spirit is in you. So... The the Holy Spirit is in each individual saint individually as He would dwell in a temple in, in each of them. So to put these two texts together, the Spirit is within each saint individually as well as dwelling in the, the assembly, the church corporately. And I think we could go elsewhere to show... He also dwells within the the, the whole church universal. Now this actually begins to shift us toward a different way of defending the doctrine of the deity of the Spirit, sort of like we did with the the Son last week, and we'll do that at the end. Think of it like this. If the Spirit of God dwells within each and every individual believer and also every local church as an assembly, and also the church universal in in all times and places, well, what does that tell us about the Spirit of God? It tells us that He is omnipresent. He can be all over in every generation all at once. There are believers meeting elsewhere, not here. The Spirit is within them as a temple. And they're, they're gathered as an assembly. The Spirit is in their assembly as in a temple. And that is true all over the world and, and throughout the age. So again, implicit here is the ascription of an attribute of deity to the Spirit. He's omnipresent. We'll see more of that in a few minutes. The next text that's mentioned is Romans chapter 8. And you can turn there. Romans chapter 8, verse... Nine. He says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Now in this passage, first there's a reference to simply the Spirit. Then there's the Spirit of God. Then He's called the Spirit of Christ. Again, three titles, which there there is probably something to that. But keep reading. Look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness... 
But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, we put all these passages, or these, these verses together in these statements. It, it really begins to, to, to make a, a pretty vibrant picture, I guess you could say, of the Holy Spirit because... In verse 10, if Christ is in you, well, that's paralleled with what we saw in verse 9 with reverence to the Spirit of God. In verse 9, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, verse 10, the Spirit of Christ is in you, or if Christ is in you, rather. Therefore, the Spirit of God is parallel to simply Christ. The Spirit of God being in you is Christ in you. And then he refers to the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus. Now, we might say that would be a reference to God generally or the Father specifically. Usually when you see references to the, the Son and, and even the Spirit and then also God, it, it's making a reference to the Father specifically. But either way, we, we might could see this as saying the Spirit of the Father in you is the same as Christ in you, which is the same as the Spirit of God in you. All of these statements just rattled off as if we should understand that this is all one, one divine person and yet the fullness of the Godhead, all of this is, would be utterly nonsensical if the Spirit is not the God of the Bible. There are clearly three distinct persons and yet only one God. Now that, I, I think, concludes the material in the workbook. So in addition to that, I want to do sort of what I did last week with regard to the Son. This time, rather than sticking to one author, last week I used the, the, the outline of uh, Plumer. I'm going to give you a sampling of material from John Owen, Herman Bovink, Gerhardus Voss, and John Gill. Now, I'm not going to walk through this and say, Voss says this, Gill says this. I'm not going to, I won't do all that. Um, I read, took all the notes, and then just put it all together here. There, there, many of their statements, again, it's interesting when you, when you survey different men and how they deal with this doctrine, a lot of their statements overlap, which is sort of the point, because you see that the, the men of the past, that the methodology of our predecessors has usually pretty much followed the same, the same rails. They all go about it pretty much the exact same way because they know that down through history, this is the way that you need to defend the doctrine against the, the opposing heresies. And so they all just come along and say, Here's how we prove the deity of the Holy Spirit. So that's what I want to show you. Um, now, to set the pace for that, I will read two quotes from John Owen. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, quote, "...things are so ordered in the wisdom of God that there is no personal property that may be found in an infinite divine nature, but it is in one place or other ascribed unto Him." That is the Spirit. And then later he says, In every great work of God, the concluding, completing, perfecting acts are ascribed unto the Holy Ghost. Now if we put these two statements together, we sort of get the same outline as we saw last week. The proper divinity of the Spirit is seen most clearly when we take note that the attributes or personal properties of God are ascribed to the Holy Spirit and also the works of God are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. 
So that's, that's what we're going to do. First then, we, we see for, throughout Scripture that the attributes of God are ascribed to the Spirit of God. First, eternity. Eternity, that, that God is uh, infinite with regard to time. He's outside of the bounds or the limits. Or we could say He is, is not limited by what we call time. He is eternal. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's referred to as the eternal Spirit. Now there is some debate there. Is He talking about the Holy Spirit or some other type of eternal Spirit? And If I'm not mistaken, I think John Owen has a way of basically saying it's a distinction without a difference. But there we have a reference to the eternal Spirit. Omnipresence, as we've already seen. The fact that the Spirit of God is everywhere, in all places, we, we could say all of the Spirit is in all places, at all times. David says in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, Where can I go from your Spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So there we have your spirit, then your presence, then you. Now who's David talking to? Verses 1 and 2. O Lord, that is O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. The spirit here is shown to be in all places at all times, but is directly addressed as Yahweh Himself. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. That is, all Christians everywhere have received this one singular uh, working of the one singular Spirit. Again, all Christians in all times and all places, Old Covenant, New Covenant, all believers have received this same baptism in the same Spirit. Therefore, the Spirit must be in all places at all times. He is omnipresent. Omniscience is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Omniscience means God knows everything. He knows all things fully and perfectly. And that's ascribed to the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now we, we could say the depths of God would be descriptive of the most incomprehensible uh, knowledge that, that could possibly exist. And yet it is the Spirit of God who knows even the depths of God. John 16, 13, Jesus promises that when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Well, how could He do that if He did not know all the truth? The Spirit is omniscient. He knows all things because He's God. Omnipotence is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Job, I think I, I, think I turned a, an extra page here. Hold on. Maybe I lost a page. 
Give me a second. Well, omnipotence is ascribed to the Spirit, but I've lost the references. I may, I may have left a page at home. Let's move to then uh, the works of God are ascribed to the Spirit. And maybe I'll find an extra page here somewhere at some point in time. The works of God. Anyway, I had many other attributes. Um, eternal, eternity, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotent love and truth. Uh, these are all attributes of the, the Spirit. Um, actually, that's the page I'm looking for. Omnipotence. Luke one thirty five. They're just out of order. Luke one thirty five. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. We hear, see here again, personal traits are ascribed to the Spirit. He will come upon you. But He's also referred to or paralleled with the power of the Most High. He has the power of God Himself. And Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. He has the power to raise the dead. He's omnipotent. The love of God is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5 Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now 1 John 4.8 we know says that God is love. We could say the love of God is God. God is love. So here the love of God, which is God, is poured into our hearts. How? Through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit was given to dwell in us, and by this indwelling, we also have the love of God in us. Since the love of God is no more or less than God Himself, then the indwelling love and indwelling Spirit are both synonymous with the indwelling God. We could say the Spirit is the love of God personified. I used to think it was interesting whenever I first read Jonathan Edwards' article on the, uh, the Holy Spirit of the Trinity and, and he referred to the Spirit as, as the love of God standing forward as, as a, a third person. Uh, the more I've read and studied, that's pretty much the understanding of everybody. Um, that, that, that the Spirit of God is the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father standing apart as a third person. That, that's, um, I've read that many, many times. The love of God is ascribed to the Spirit. And then uh, the attribute that we would call truth or veracity. 1 John 5, 6, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Just as God is in Himself the truth, we know that Christ claimed, I am the way, the truth and the life, and here we see the Spirit is also termed the truth. So again, as I read earlier, out of order, eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, love and truth, all of these are attributes that we're going to see of God later on in this, this study. All of that is given and ascribed and personified in the Holy Spirit. Secondly then, the works of God are ascribed to the Spirit. The works of God. First, creation is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, this is Genesis 1, 
1 and 2, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now that word, moving, I'm gonna, this is my stab at a pronunciation of it, Marakafeth, I had, it's here, it's in Deuteronomy 32, and then this week I found a, I was shown, another use of a form of this word in Jeremiah 23, 9 that helps us get a picture of what it means. Uh, the Spirit of God was moving. Some of you have hovering. Jeremiah 29, 3, all my bones tremble. It's the same word. So, so imagine a, 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 a trembling of the bones. That's its picture. It's defined as an easy, gentle motion such as a dove's wings hovering over its nest. That was... That's what's uh, predicated of the Holy Spirit there in creation. Job 26.13 says, By His Spirit the heavens were made fair, or, or we would say they were, they were brought to their perfect beauty. The Holy Spirit did that. Psalm 8 refers to the heavens as the work of your fingers. Now you might say, Fingers, okay, so what? Well, in Luke eleven twenty, our Lord says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. In Matthew 12, it's recorded as, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Leading us to conclude, the finger of God is, a, is an anthropomorphism for the Spirit of God. And so we could read Psalm 8, 3, The heavens are the work of God's Spirit or the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to turn backwards and I should be back in order here. Correct. Uh, of individuals. Job 33, 4, Elihu or Elihu. He says, The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So He is the Creator, the Holy Spirit. The preservation or maintaining of creation is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Psalm 104, 30, When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. In other words, He keeps creation from decaying. He sustains it. One commentary describes this idea as it says, It is His, that is the Spirit of God, it is His constant providence which repairs the wastes of time and disease. We're not evolutionists. We don't believe things are just getting better and better and better all the time. We know, we know that things are corroding. Things decay. And yet it is the Spirit of God who constantly renews the created order to keep it moving along until such a time as uh, the end will, will come. That's the Holy Spirit. Miracles are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Again, Matthew 12, 28, It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Regeneration is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. In John 3, verses 3 to 5, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God a reference to regeneration. In Titus 3.5, we learn that God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, then, 
The new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. As well as salvation in general, overall, is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Washed, sanctified, justified. All of that by the Spirit. The government of the church is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, 2-4, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. It was the Holy Spirit who, who comes and appoints and selects and disposes these men for their missionary work. In Acts 15, 28, it says, It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. It is the Spirit who established the rules for practical godliness in those Gentile churches. In Acts 20, 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. It is the Holy Spirit who sets apart and designates men to the office of overseer or elder. The Holy Spirit does that. It's, it's His job as governor of the church. The uh, speaking, or we could say the revelation of God, is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.16 we read, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The Holy Spirit spoke. Let me find my page here. Okay, now then Peter quotes from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Psalm 69, 25. May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. Psalm 109, 8. May his days be few, may another take his office. These are Psalms penned by David. Peter says the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David... In Psalm 23, David attributes his psalmody to the Spirit of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the Rock of Israel. The Spirit spoke, the God of Israel spoke, the Rock of Israel spoke. All of this is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. We, we say sometimes, you know, I don't need a red letter Bible because all of the Bible is the Word of Christ. Well, we could say the same thing about the Spirit. It's all the Word of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The Holy Spirit said that. And those words are attributed to the Spirit. Now when we go to where those words were originally recorded, Psalm 95... Verses 6 and 7, it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, and then it goes on to follow what was quoted there in Hebrews. So, so here we see the Holy Spirit is ascribed, if we go back to the psalm, the Holy Spirit is being paralleled with Yahweh our Maker, our God, and we could say our shepherd. We're the sheep of His pasture. He's our shepherd. 
Again, the point is all of these words are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. He is the, the one who gives us the revelation of God. And then the resurrection of the dead is also ascribed to the Holy Spirit, as we've already read in Romans 8, 10 to 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection of the dead, there is ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Now, I also want to read through various Trinitarian formulas that we see in the Scriptures. The point in... in reading through these and taking note of them is that, as it was already said, these would be blasphemous if the Son and the Spirit were also not attributed with the same uh, status of deity or divinity with the Father. If they were not one, then it, would, it wouldn't make no sense to put all these things together. We know Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There they are three together. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God, who empowers them all in everyone. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There they are three together. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, beloved brothers, by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three again. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, of all who is over all and through all and in all. Again, very often you see that it's in that order. Spirit, Lord, Father. Spirit, Lord, Father, which we, we typically think is, is backwards, but that's the way it's presented. Revelation 1-4, grace to you, or yeah, 4-5, through five, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before His throne, a reference to the Holy Spirit, and then from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Three again. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That might be in here twice. The point is we see these Trinitarian formulas consistently. These things... If we if we only read the holy or the, the holy the the holy Old Testament if we only read the Old Testament we we might begin to think these things are are maybe even not there when you get to the New Testament it's so explicit the information is so clearly set forth that it it begins almost difficult to put it into a a, a, a formula so to speak a, a a consistent doctrine I think if you'll pay attention to the way that these things are stated in the book and elsewhere, then when you go back to read the Old Testament, you're going to see 
The Old Testament is not silent about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not, it might not be as crystal clear, but there, you can't get around it. Once you, once you let the New Testament explain um, the prior revelation, you, you, you begin to see it everywhere. So then we see, this is the conclusion, that the Holy Spirit is the eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent love and truth of God. He is creator and the preserver of creation. He's the author of miracles, of regeneration, and of all salvation. He's the governor of the church and the author of all divine revelation. He gives life to everything that lives, and He will be the one who raises the dead. That's the Holy Spirit. Now Paul says in Ephesians 1 that when you believed... In Him, Christ, you were sealed. If you're a Christian, you have been sealed, marked by the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance. If you belong to Christ, you've been sealed with that Spirit who is God Himself. And he also says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy. What should stir up more joy in us than to know that God Himself, by the and through the indwelling of the third person, the Holy Spirit has come to reside in us and to seal us as His own forever. That should be a joyful thought. So may the Lord do just that for us as we take these truths to heart. Let's pray.